everyone. I was just laughing at myself. I was noticing as people came on, uh, and often all of you are quite generous to uh, do a gasho bow when you when you greet everyone. Uh, and I tend not to do that because I would just be going uh, all the time as you come in. But I, I realize I've been um, conditioned by watching the latest um, uh, episodes of The Crown. So I just kind of go, mum, you know, <laughs> the way the family does to the queen. Uh, it's kind of funny. Just a little nod. You may hear the sound of rain on the roof. Let's enjoy a few minutes of sitting.
if you would uh, join me in the four practice principles to begin with today. Caught in the self-centered dream, only suffering, holding to self-centered thoughts, exactly the dream. Each moment, life as it is, the only teacher, being just this moment, compassion's way. Caught in the self-centered dream, only suffering, holding to self-centered thoughts, exactly the dream. Each moment, life as it is, the only teacher, being just this moment, compassion's way. Caught in the self-centered dream, only suffering, holding to self-centered thoughts, exactly the dream. Each moment, life as it is, the only teacher, being just this moment, compassion's way. <clears throat> uh, for some reason, as I, uh, I began the, the verse, which most of us know, and <clears throat> we can we can voice without really thinking about it too much. I immediately flashed on the first time. Um, I, I it was at the the crossings in Austin way back when, and Peg was writing it down and showing me this, and I and I was so startled because it was so. Um, so wonderful. And I remember I said, write that down. I want to have that. Uh, and now uh, we're using it as if it comes forward in a different way. But I was just appreciating that moment, Peg, when you were first showing that to me. <clears throat> I'm also um, feeling grateful as I look at the screen and I see uh, Judith, Judith Elaine from, from Little Rock. And um, Grateful for the retreat we just completed there over the weekend online. I didn't fly to Little Rock and back again, uh, but it kind of felt like that. <clears throat> and I actually want to begin with a little vignette that I uh, spoke about uh, in the retreat itself. We were um, emphasizing and um, Zen mind, beginner's mind. Um, we were moving our way through the book and those teachings from Suzuki Roshi. And so I would often, as, as I do, uh, I was using some small vignettes, some of which are quite familiar to you, stories. Uh, but this one is what I want to begin with today. <clears throat> and here's how it uh, appears in uh, David Chadwick's compilation of these small Vignettes called Zen is right here, or Zen is right now, the teaching stories and anecdotes. One day at Tassajara, Suzuki Roshi and a group of students took some tools and walked up a hot, dusty trail to work on a project. When they got to the top, they discovered that they had forgotten a shovel, and the students began a discussion about who should return to get it. After the discussion had ended, they realized that Roshi wasn't there. He was already halfway down the mountain trail on his way back to pick up the shovel. Not being caught in a discussion, it's like, oh, that's what's needed. Boom, you go. Very similar to um, another anecdote that, that Peg and I share when we were um, training at the Austin Zen Center, one of the teachers who would come and lead retreats, um, not through the Austin Zen Center so much, but another um, a Rinzai group in Austin, they would use the same retreat center, uh, Van Tenzo, uh, that Aaron was managing at that time. Um, and Sherry uh, Chayat, Roko uh, Chayat uh, Roshi from Syracuse, New York. She's a, a very esteemed uh, senior Rinzai teacher. And we got to spend some time with her and she was talking, uh, Peg was talking with her 
uh, about the quality of senior students or mature students or some things that showed up. And she said, yeah, those they can turn on a dime. A phrase that's used in the United States, they can turn on a dime. And thinking of that and this story about Suzuki Roshi and his students, I just wanted to reflect on this a, a bit, um, as, as always, just to encourage us to reflect on these things so that we might might discuss some of your own practice edges around them. Um, what does it mean uh, to be this responsive and so immediate and and so willing? You know, training in the the forms that we use in the Zendo and in service in the Buddha Hall. Um, it's a bit of a review, but I think it's important. You know, they're not the forms are not about trying to make you a, a good Zen student that acts right or mimicking some Asian model of Buddhist practice. It's drawn from that, but that's not the point. I think I mentioned last week Soto practice is mainly about taking care of things. And taking care of each other. But the forms are an enactment of practice, just like Dogen taught that zazen is an expression of our innate nature. They're not things you do to become something. They're an expression of wakefulness and action with people. So through zazen, regular zazen, and engaging our forms, we learn and we teach by modeling, we're shaped, all shaped, and shape each other in this rare expression, I think it's rare these days, of uh, aliveness and attentive responsiveness. It's kind of a vitality and responsiveness. And if you pay attention, Especially, for example, if some of you are in the Zendo and you're learning the forms, like how to do the clappers or the Han to bring people to, to practice. If you're a, a Jisha working with the teacher to offer incense. If you're uh, using the bell to signal certain things. Uh, what you're really learning is <clears throat> everything that is done is a response do something else. A clapper makes a sound, you go into gasho. Another two, you turn. Another one, you walk. That everything is in response to something else. So everything that is being done is an offering. And then your response is the return act of gratitude to receive the offering. A bell is rung. That's a generous offering. The return bow to begin our chant is the generous act of gratitude of receiving it. And this is how everything is. If you began to pay close attention, everything is in response to something else. This is form, is the dance of emptiness, meaning uh, boundlessness. Boundlessness shows up in innumerable ways. And the form is a, a dance of boundlessness in this embodied enactment of mutual causality. I know there's a lot in that sentence, but everything is related to everything else. And we wake up to that as we do these simple embodied things. It's not just a thing to do so you'll be a good student. It's teaching you something, and it's offering something, and it's uh, gratefully receiving something. And of course, while this happens, I don't know about you, but your individual small self watches to see how you're doing. You know, or you're freaked out that you will do it wrong. And then you compare yourself with others and how they're doing, right? These things happen. And those are very useful things because they're like pointers, like a Geiger counter that starts clicking, like, oh, there's a bit of self-centered practice, the self-centered dream. Those are useful pieces of data, not problems, if you take the practice turn. And this longing for perfection or purity or whatever you want to call it at its base, I think, 
really translates into this longing for love and acceptance and maybe some imagined release or freedom that you, you hope to get. But this kind of comes in, and goes in our um, our awareness, just like right now we're, we're on the edge of the front that has passed us. It's been raining for two days. And so I'm looking out the window and this immense rainbow is coming up and then it starts raining again. It goes away and then it comes back. It's, it's sort of like that. Sometimes we see clearly and we see all the the reflected light of practice and its beauty, and sometimes it gets occluded. But it, we, it's longing actually for freedom. So do we make the effort to perform each thing really well? Maybe with more ease and more grace? Well, of, of course. Of course you do. But there's a difference if you notice that, is it in the service of bolstering up the small self so you'd be a good student? Or is it to express this big mind, big heart in support of others? And both things happen. There's not a wrong one and a right one. It's the noticing. And ultimately we realize, oh, in the Bodhisattva vow, Buddha's way is unsurpassable. I vow to embody it. That's what we're doing. Because as we embody Buddha's way, as we come into this embodied immediacy, it assists us in freeing all beings, inside and out, clarifying all delusion, learning to turn on a dime as each Dharma gate presents itself. Each moment, life as it is, the only teacher. So I wanted us to think about this and what you find as you practice both in your accommodation to forms and your reaction to them, um, both your moving with others in the Sangha or reacting to them, and how this is all data. There's just data if you see it in a, from a practice point of view, rather than my personal preferences and these problematic other people. There's a couple of qualities that maybe I'll say a couple of things more about. One is responsiveness. And the other is improvisational virtuosity, which we, we talk about quite a bit. Responsiveness. A practice is teaching us responsiveness, unhindered by attachment. But first it shows us our attachment and shows us uh, how we get tangled up. Here's another little story. A student came to Suzuki Roshi and he said, I'm struggling with questions about meaning, if any, of life and death. And I told Suzuki Roshi that I was engaging in an existential philosophical quest. I told him how absorbing and exciting it was for me and asked him if I was on the right track. And he said, there is no end to that kind of search. There's no end to that kind of search. Of course, our study is useful. When paired with committed practice, so we begin to understand how it moves, and working with a teacher, so we can have a companion on the way if we get off, just like this student was asking Suzuki Roshi's teaching. And philosophical explorations may have their own gifts, in, in that arena, but they're not a substitute for practice. And they don't do the same thing. Philosophical explorations of things don't prime us for embodied immediacy and responsiveness. In fact, they can sometimes take us a bit away because we have to think about things. And that, that's where it's, you know, and the, there's a little three-part kind of practicality that I offered in my TEDx talk. Uh, I talked about pause, reflect, and connect. Because I was talking to an audience that didn't have much practice experience. But what I was attempting to express was, if we can find moments of stillness, just pausing, slowing down, so that we can reflect on what's happening, 
inside and outside and connect with what's happening with ourselves and with others, then something new can happen. There's a, a stillness, a pause. Reflect inside and out and connect inside and out. And then we're not quite so caught in self-concern or intellectual models because if we do, we miss the opportunity to like get the shovel, to just immediately respond, to turn on a dime, to do what's needed. It's also one of the things that um, is, I remember I was, um, I was in Japan and there was a day in which we could actually wash clothes, which is kind of unusual in these monasteries. And I was walking through one of the rooms and I saw Mel Weissman with his clothes and I just held out my hands and said, let me take yours. She said, no, no, they're really dirty. I don't know. I said, you know, let me help you. And he said, okay. So that's a simple kind of responsiveness. Um, and we talk about this in our practice a lot by using that term improvisational virtuosity, which we um, were given by uh, Peter Hershock and his, I think it's just so great. It's that um, jazz metaphor. Um, here's another little story. While serving as Suzuki Roshi's attendant, I arrived at his cabin at Tassajara and found him in his underwear scrubbing the toilet. I said, I should be doing that, you know, really embarrassed. And he said, sit down and have some tea. It's, it's an interesting little moment where the person realized, oh, this is something I could have done, but the teacher's not concerned about it. It was in front of him, so he did it. He said, enjoy yourself. So you might think of it this way. Practice embodiment so you can embody practice. Practice embodiment so you can embody practice. Or embody practice so it is the good practice of embodiment. Learn to respond from a deeper place, from your inside. You know, when we talk about chanting from your hara, from your belly, it's like responding from that place, not just up top. There's another uh, beautiful story about this that Katagiri tells about uh, when he was training with his teacher in the monastery uh, and moving from self-concern to immediacy. He tells a story about how he would be his teacher's attendant when they went to the bath. And in Japan, that's kind of a big deal. And it was a very formal thing about going to the hot plunge and the little places, little bucket. You sit on a small stool and you wash yourself. It's a whole ritual. And each time he would have the scrub brush and he would ask his master's teacher and say, can I scrub your back? And the teacher would go, oh, uh, you know, just wave him off. Over and over, day after day, he would respectfully ask his teacher, can I scrub your back? And he'd go, oh. And one day, he picked up the scrub dress and just scrubbed his back. And the teacher went, oh. The move from self-concern, am I going to do it right, to immediacy. then something will happen. And you'll have to respond to that next thing that happens with improvisational virtuosity. Maybe you get a wave off. Maybe you get a release and ascent like he did. But it doesn't mean you're always going to get it right. It means you're going to risk being present. And you're going to risk offering yourself fully with full vulnerability because that's where you're going to learn that's not a small thing as you know even raising your hand or coming forward in inquiry is like that you risk that vulnerability you risk doing something not trying to be to be right what we're met with are a lot of surprises and then a question about how much willingness we have in practice you know joel spoke to me recently about a day that he 
showed up at Appamata, uh, and he was the first one there. And that's hard to do, to get ahead of Kim. You know, he was the first one in the Zendo. And so he was, and, and if any of you have done this before, you know how beautiful it is to come and open the door and turn on the lights. And it's so still and silent and it's beautiful to go in that way. And it came time for the clappers and no one else was there. And then, um, then someone showed up. He said, well, I guess I'll just continue. That's what I used to do when no one else would show up in the early days or Peg would do and um, Ordinary mind, when no one was there, she would just continue. We just continue. But then someone showed up and said, oh, can I do that for you? And he said, sure. And another person showed up and said, would you like me to ring the bell? He said, sure. People could see what was needed. They were really to turn on a dime, to step in, to make a generous offering to what was there. There's a, a great story that I love told by Ed Satizan, is one of the former abbots at San Francisco Zen Center. Um, the way he, he writes it, he said, in the summer of 1970, so this is uh, in the early days of Tassajara, but only a year before Suzuki Roshi died, actually. In the summer of 1970, I was a guest student. So he hadn't been there. He was very brand new at Tassajara, and I was on the dishwashing schedule. So I went to the baths early. There's the hot springs there. Beautiful, beautiful formal bath. Um, because he went, he got to take his bath in the afternoon before he had to go to do dishwasher for the evening. He said, being a new student, I didn't know about the abbot's private bath time. And I barged in right on him. And Suzuki Roshi was sitting on the floor washing himself with a pail and filling a small tub with water so he could soak. It was an individual one. He was getting ready to soak. He looked up at me and asked if I wanted to take a bath. And he said, I was so flummoxed and shocked. I was unsure about what to do. And so I somehow interpreted this as an invitation to join him in the bath. And so he went He went and he got undressed and put his clothes and his towel up. And when he turned around, Suzuki Roshi was completely dressed. And as he was climbing in the small tub of water that Suzuki Roshi had drawn for himself, he saw that he was leaving. And at the door, he paused and turned around to Ed and said, don't worry. And then left. This generous receiving. So people that came in to help Joel made this generous offering. And what Ed said, I had to accept this generous receiving, generous offering, generous receiving. And those things began to not seem like giving and receiving after a while. But sometimes we're shocked into uh, the immediacy that's required. The last time that Peg and I visited Joko and Prescott, we were in line for practice discussion with everyone else. And we were the last two people. Um, and when I went in, and I spoke with her for a few minutes and we talked about whatever we talked about. She said, um, and she's very matter of fact and very direct. Oh, by the way, she said, we're going to finish here and we're going to go back up and then you're going to give the Dharma talk. And then um, uh, you're going to do that thing that you do. They need to see that. It's like, what? In two minutes, I'm going to give the Dharma talk. Everybody's there to see Joko and Peg's going to help out. She had told her something similar. And I said, that thing I do, you mean inquiry? She said, yeah, yeah, they need to see that. Okay. So we went up and she had, she had this great bright red leather sofa that she was sitting on. And she said, Pat, you know, sit next to me. And so Peg and I had to say something and give a little talk right, spontaneously. And then I invited students to come sit next to me. And we did what? you've experienced him at the end the last person who was this vietnam vet had a powerful exchange he stood up to leave and on the coffee table in front of the sofa i don't know if you in the united states have seen this but there was a advertising campaign for a while for office depot i think it was where they they said you had the easy button do any of you remember that it was like this thing and you could buy one it was a silly gag we could hit it, it was like it was the easy button 
because it was easy to get your needs met there for your office. So someone had given one of those to Joko and it was on the, so this guy got up and slammed down on that. He said, well, that was easy. <laughs> and I thought, well, not for me because I, I was not so sure. <clears throat> but this was responding to the teacher in service of the Sangha. It just, now that's what was required. And doing things in this way isn't being submissive to the teacher. It's learning wholehearted surrender to what's needed. Each moment, life as it is. Learning to say yes, and then to watch what happens. Not to negotiate with the situation immediately, but to step in. And you're going to find, I'm, I find my barriers, my reactivity, uh, all the stuff. And that's useful because then I know what to turn toward. That's what I'm practicing with. This is the essence of practice, to meet what arises, to see with deeper clarity my own reactivity and the automatic habits of how I try to negotiate. Those are not a problem. That's the practice path. And sometimes you gain a little clarity and wisdom. And sometimes you don't. Sometimes what you do is wholesome. And sometimes it's not. And so that's what you bring to the teacher or spiritual friend. Be curious and responsive. Learn to turn on a dime. Just one last little thing, a, a koan that I uh, we were using in the UK. The one about uh, the monk coming to Joshu and saying, I've just entered the monastery, so give me some instructions. And Joshu said, well, have you eaten your breakfast? And he said, yes, I have. So he said, okay, wash your bowls. Very direct. We're all students in the midst of our lives waiting for life to happen. I may be the teacher waiting to teacup on my, my desk or I'm the bowl that needs washing and the breakfast already eaten. I'm the bath needing to be drawn, the toilet needed to be clean. How are we going to enter life fully? It's right here. How do you want to live it? Can you actually allow all the joys and sorrows to be the enlivenment of practice? Not the problems we have to work through? Or do we just go along with our automatic patterns and habits and protections? I've often said we can practice our conditioning or we can practice with our conditioning. So many people that I've worked with in the past who are dying have reminded me that they'll say something, I can't believe I wasn't here for most of my life. It's unfortunately one of the common things I've, I've heard. And, I, and it's also one of the biggest regrets people will experience sometimes because people may not have inhabited their lives because they're just waiting for other moments or they're frozen in a fearful moment when it appears before them. So are you waiting for life to happen in the midst of life? Are there ways you might give yourself more freely to your lives moment by moment? Don't wait because life's always right here. Practice presence. Presence. Practice embodiment so you can embody practice. Learn the generosity of Receiving what's offered and the generosity of offering your life back. Learn to meet what's right in front of you and see what it teaches you. And learn to turn on a dime. So now do that now, here with me. What if we take, go. John Eric. Hi, Flint. There. So Zen teaching on probes. Yes. 
uh, I just, I just so resonated with what you were saying and I could, I could feel my own journey of stepping forward and, and taking on roles in the Zendo and how there's that initial, like, I could never do that. I'll never be the monitor. I'll never be the, the doan or, you know, that's, that's too much or, you know, and that hesitation really just being a reflection of wanting to do it right. And then saying yes at some point and then doing the role and really wanting to just do it right mm-hmm. and feeling, um, you know, nervous about doing it in a way that, you know, because, you know, it makes noise like with the clackers and, you know, everything else is quiet or, or with the bell, you know, you're kind of like, it's, it's yeah, you're okay. by our, our mistakes are very apparent. Very much. Yeah. Good. And, uh, <laughs> And just how over time that shift in, in my practice has, has moved towards uh, just noticing like, oh, you know, I, I did the clackers really fast or loud or soft or whatever. And how that has softened into wanting to, I think, as you were saying, like, uh, do the role in an upright way for the sake of everyone, for the sake of the practice and for the space and just to hold the space and and how that, you know, the the way you do the clackers where the, the doshi is you know, stepping before the altar and, and thinking about, you know, I want to do those three hits so that they can step and follow them. And and it's just, it's just, it's a beautiful unfolding that really, I think, um, feels like intimacy, you know, and just like, this is how I am in this moment. It is exactly intimacy and presence. And that shift from over-concern, oh my God, I've never, I, I'm praying, to uh, relaxing that isn't about it doesn't matter or I don't care. It's a different, right. it's a different kind. Of, it's not the small self trying to be good. It's that larger heart and mind wanting to express beauty, to accord with reality, to support what's happening so that people will be encouraged in practice. It's a very different shift. Yeah, it's like where you put your care. Is your care around... I want to do this well and and serve that part or do I care about this container? Yeah. And you can serve all of it. You, you might want to do a good job. There's nothing wrong with that, but that's, they can get really entangled, of course. Mm -hmm. So I appreciate your speaking that that certainly echoes my experience. And it's also why as um, senior students, you invite other people to take on the roles. And not just wait sometimes. Would you like to learn this? And people go, oh, no, I'm scared. It's like, oh, okay. But what if I was with you? What if I just helped you? Mm-hmm. And that's the enactment of practice. That's not so you'll learn to do something. That's it. That's the Bodhisattva vow. Mm-hmm. Someone told me that they decided to come to practice one time at the Austin Zen Center when, during um they were watching because they'd never been in service before. And I had a chant book and the person next to me who was also a newcomer had a chant book and they didn't know where to go because we're not telling people what the, announcing the chant. And so every time I would, the Kokyo would announce like Heart Sutra, I would open to the Heart Sutra and give it to the person next to me. And then she would give me her book. And then the next one, I would look it up and give it to her. And we never talked. And someone said, oh, that's I see. And it's really nothing except just responsive attentiveness, intimacy, presence. Mm-hmm. Yeah. So thank you. Yes, thank you. Thank you for this presence, this intimacy. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Hey there. Hello, hello. Oh, I wasn't teaching martial arts, but... <laughs> <laughs> and at the moment, I'm not either. I'm uh, feeling very comfortable learning <laughs> and being present. So thank you. Um, Those are a lot of what you teach in that sensei role, isn't it? Yes. Yes. You know, I just love that you're, you're offering today. Thank you so much. And, and to be followed by John Eric just enhanced it even more. I was thinking about a personal experience, you know, actually while I was sitting in the few moments at the beginning uh, of inquiry. <clears throat> and so it's not an external sort of performance embracing, 
you know, uh, it's an internal. And I found myself realizing that my parts, you know, I, I learned that my parts and sometimes protect me. But I had this this thought process that my part that says, you know, I, I've been finding myself reading. And when I read, I think I have to retain every single word, every medical description, every everything so that I can somehow go to the world and go, let me show you how smart I am. And it becomes a performance thing. And, and I realized that that fear, the part of me that resists openly learning and being present for reading and, and learning things is a part that's like a protector that's saying, you're not smart enough for this. And then it went right to being friendly with that protector and going, what is it that it's blocking? You know, how can that be repurposed? And when I repurpose it, I find myself going, oh, it's think it thinks it has to protect me from being creative and curious and, and, if you will, you know, virtue in, in the, the virtuosity in the idea of just being me. And, and, and I, it's like, I'm, I have a fear of what would happen if I was to be all those wonderful things. And so my, my patterns, my habits, my mental habits, if you will, can somehow shut me down from being that open, virtuous, you know, responsive, creative person. And it fits with the talk today. Um, and I really, I really appreciate that. And, and I, I'm just so grateful. I'm so grateful for not only these talks, but this fellowship, this family, this sangha, this, this community, because I get to be connected through this screen. And then when I see some folks in person, I'm like, oh my gosh, you know, how rich and real that is. But I absolutely love the idea of being responsive in that moment and being able to just do things, uh, you know, without thinking about them instead of asking permission. And, and that's a little habit I have because I'm a quote helper. I tend to think, well, can I do this for you? Or can I do that for you? Instead of just doing it and feeling that wonderful feeling at the moment. So I just thought I'd offer that and thank everybody and wish everybody a warm and wonderful, abundant Thanksgiving. Um, and thank you so much, Flint, always. Well, my you heart. pointed to something else I want to make sure that we don't miss, which is you were telling us how you could notice your protectors. Mm. And what you're nudging up the edge of that we want to, it's, it's often easy for us in practice to notice our protectors, all the reactivity we have that trying to protect. What we don't notice is what's being protected. Mm. The vulnerable part that says, I won't be loved, I won't be accepted which is the real driver for most of these things, the fear that will be hurt or that will have some emotional, you know, that what's being protected is the tenderness. Okay. Uh, the protectors are the, literally the, uh, the ones who are trying to soften the blow in a certain way. Yeah. We can be protected from what seems vulnerable and hurt, but also our beauty, like, as you were saying, mm. the love. So. Just wanted to make that distinction because I think it goes along with what you're saying. Thank you. And, you know, as going full circle to your opening remark about being a martial artist and a sensei, it's like when I teach and I see the results in people, it's exactly what you described. I don't think about it. I just do. And then when I watch the people learn and improve and train and feel good inside themselves, it's like, I know why I'm there. And yeah, they, they, they may perform beautifully and wonderfully in the dojo, but how do they live their life? Mm -hmm. Do you yeah. see them differently? And that's what our work is. Yeah, mm -hmm. exactly. The way. <laughs> Thank you. You're there. Okay. I agree. Good to see you. Good to see you just down the road. Yes. Um. One of the things that I've found is very challenging to sit with is frustration. Um, I can sit with sadness. I can sit with a lot of things, but sitting with frustration is um, something that I met with a lot right now because I can't move as fast as I could. And everything takes so much longer 
and it did. I see myself walking down the stairs. You know, I'm going to run down the stairs and get this and come back up. Well, it, that could take 45 minutes. And it's um, finally I'm getting to the places. No, everything is a Tai Chi move. <laughs> you know, it's just like, I just, I, I don't know why I wanted to say that frustration is really hard to sit with. Can be, absolutely. This sort of being held back or restrained or inhibited. Yes. Uh, and there's this gap, what you're saying, between the idea of yourself and the reality of your embodied self. Right. Uh, which is, um, I'm just thinking for myself, it's another um, strong um, learning about aging, too. It, it, it's more dramatic for you because you've had an injury and all these things, surgeries. But like, I can't do the things that I think I should be able to do physically that I used to be able to do. And it's very frustrating. Mm -hmm. So you're also met with grief. There's a kind of a grief attached to it, I'm sure. It's like, what's grief happened? And, and anger. Yes, that's right. That's the, the grief is the collapsing and the anger is the pushing back. Absolutely. Right. It's quite uh, a Yeah. Uh, all of them are saying, this is not the life I expected. Right. And I, I have someone in my air milieu whose constant thing is hurry. You're going to be late. You're going to be, you know, you're not moving fast enough. So I'm hearing this from the outside, but it's reflecting what I'm saying on the inside. <laughs> like, yeah. Come on. Yeah, some of that is present stuff and some of it's old stuff. Right. Yeah, that we find it. So it's all coming forward. And to learn to accept your rhythm. Right. You know, you accept Bindi's rhythm. It's like, oh, yeah. she's different now. She can't do what she used to do. But you don't say hurry up, do you? No. No. <gasps> Well, how about being passion for her? I know. How about yourself? The <laughs> same. Yeah. It brings up everything else, unlike that compassion. It brings up all the old things about hurry and rush. And yeah. I, I made a bunch of mistakes lately and bungled things and hurt myself a little bit. And, and most of it is because I was going too fast because I was responding to that voice. Yeah. So fast. And so I thought, okay, I'll try to slow down consciously, which is unpleasant. And I did that. And then I noticed what came up in the space of going slower. There's not enough time. I'm, I'm 72 years old. There's not enough time. I'm going to die. I didn't think that stuff consciously. And I'm not saying that's behind yours at all. I'm just saying that when we do slow down, we find what's underneath the, the uh, unhappiness, the suffering that goes with it. What is it that's... that's uh, being protected by our moving quickly and doing things in an ordinary way. And that's a, that's a longer tender path, you know, we share, so. There's a lot of wisdom in that comes from surrendering to frustration. There is, there is. It's the, do you remember that thing that Suzuki Roshi used to say about Sashin? Because, you know, you have a lot of frustration in a retreat because you can't move, you're, you know, very, he said, it's like, putting a snake in a bamboo tube. It's like every place you try to, you realize, oh, oh, oh I'm, I'm inhibited here. And so you, you see all the, the ways that you, uh, you have personal individual longing for certain things that you can't have. So uh, let's continue together on this one. Yes, thank you. Yeah. <laughs> Um, Becky's next. Hi, Becky. Hello, Flint. I I really appreciate this. I think that the whole um, spiral of embodying our practice and practicing our embodiment, uh, because it's not, you know, it's not one, it's not two it's not one it's not uh but it but it is a 
a, a, a movement that responds to itself mm-hmm. as well as to the circumstance. But it, uh, so I, I just wanted to really appreciate the way that you put that because so, so many of the things that, that the teachings include that at a certain point, like where I feel like, oh, you know, this, and it's like, oh, now I have some freedom factor or something like that. And then I start seeing the many layers of it and the many, and as I say, the spiral often of what it is. Um, and, and I wanted to share with Bronwyn, thank you so much for that, uh, Bronwyn, because it's, it's a journey a lot of us share with, you know, and, and uh, what, what I found myself doing, and it was really useful for me, um, when, when I was first, uh, probably about a year into my practice, maybe, uh, that I decided that I was going to have a practice of embodying slothfulness. <laughs> because the sloth is not something to be, I mean, it, it's, it's being the very best of what it is that it can be when it goes so slow. And so, you know, that's the, the word sloth comes from the English word for slow. And, and so, um, so I, I put a big poster at the end of my long haul. And when I was trying to keep walking, as I was losing my walking, I, I would do it as a sloth. <laughs> do it with full slowness. So I, I would, just wanted. <laughs> we call it graceful ease. Hmm. Hmm. Well, anyway, it gave me a few laughs too. Good. That's that's the other thing. It's better. That's <laughs> right. That's right. That's one of those good things for frustration. Yeah. Anyway, I just want to thank you. I think that that all the times that we ourselves or someone else opens up the possibility of another layer of something that you've experienced something of it's so yeah it's so exciting thank you thank you becky and we have sue coming in right here at the end (laughs) hi sue hi flint Oh, man, your talk really resonated with me. And I could identify with every single person who spoke. There was just something in it. And so I was thinking about the Sangha and how I felt when I first came, the nervousness and all of that. And then I began to realize that everybody there seemed to be supportive. So I could just rest in that. And when I made a mistake, I either didn't pay too much attention to it. Of course, at the beginning I did, but nobody cared. And if you talked about it, they just laughed. And they'd tell about all the times they did it. And, and now we have this book club there is, uh, that we meet every couple of weeks. And it's just a place where, you know, we read, we, well, we sit, we read, and we sit, and we write, and then we discuss. And, I mean, we all feel like we can say anything in that group doesn't matter what it is. We can, t- we can tell the most horrible thing in the world. And people would just, mm, you know, it, it's just accepted. And, now, and so it gives me more courage now to go out into the world and kind of practice some of that and to be a little braver about saying yes okay uh, yes i'll try that yeah, I'll so bring that back. yeah 
I mean, it's just, <laughs> I just feel like the whole thing went round and round today in a, the most wonderful way. Wonderful. So thank you. You're thanks welcome. to everybody who's here. That's right. There's a, a weaving and a dancing together. It is. It's wonderful. So let's express that wonder by chanting the verse of the robe then together. Vast is the robe of liberation, a formless field of benefaction. Wearing the universal teaching, I realize the one true nature, thus harmonizing all being. Vast is the robe of liberation, a formless field of benefaction. Wearing the universal teaching, I realize the one true nature, thus harmonizing all being. Vast is the robe of liberation, a formless field of benefaction. Wearing the universal teaching, I realize the one true nature, thus harmonizing all being. Have a wonderful Thanksgiving. Modest programs and facilities are because of you and your generosity. Thank you so much for all that you do. Posted a link in the chat for contributions, uh, which you can find on the website. And hopefully now uh, you'll stick around for some chatting with Maria.